Well, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On June 6, 1944, Dwight D. Eisenhower pulled off the most stunning and impressive invasion in military history. Over 100,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, and by June 11th, another 200,000 had crossed over with 100,000 tons of military equipment in tow. But as troops advanced into the hedgerows of France, uh, these giant rows, half earth, half hedge, 50 feet tall, the Germans for, uh, uh, formulated a counteroffensive using their infamous a blitzkrieg tactic. Now, the blitzkrieg or lightning war tactic was a deceptive one. The Germans would rush in with columns of panzer tanks and troops swiftly into battle to overwhelm their enemy. The Allied forces would collapse at the sight of what appeared to be an invincible, unrelenting monster bearing down on them. That was the Allied reaction to the Blitzkrieg for most of the war. They could see only its power and their own vulnerability. So when this final Blitzkrieg came, would it push the Allies back to the beaches of Normandy that they had just won at such a high cost? How could they stop it? Well, the key involved listening and trusting in their leadership. Eisenhower, in the face of this massive counterattack, is quoted saying, the present situation is to be regarded as opportunity for us and not disaster. He had a plan to, to thwart this cunning blitzkrieg attempt, but it sounded a little crazy. Let the Nazis in. If the Allied forces could bend and not break, then they could funnel 50,000 German troops at a time into a net, or as General Patton eloquently called it, the meat grinder. It sounded crazy to the troops, but if they heeded the voice of their commander, and their victory would be assured. Well, in our reading this week, in chapter 7, we read a number of war stories. War stories. The Israelites were on the beaches of the Jordan River, ready to storm into the promised land. It had been 40 years since they had stood on these banks. Forty years since they had heard that bad report from the spies sent to scout the promised land. And there Joshua stood. Now Joshua was one of those spies, but he had come back with a different report. Joshua had trusted God's promise back then to, to protect and be with the Israelite people and to give them success over their enormous enemies. But these enemies weren't any smaller 40 years later. But Joshua had aged, 
he was an old man now. Would he still heed the voice of his commander? Evidently, God knew that Joshua needed some, some bolstering, needed some encouragement. And we couldn't read it in our text today, uh, but you heard it spoken to you, uh, this kind of a pep talk that Yahweh, who's called the Lord of armies, right, the God of Sabaoth, He gives to Joshua. And in it we heard uh, repeated four times in three verses, or excuse me, three times in four verses, uh, that line, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And these aren't just empty words that God is speaking to Joshua. These aren't just niceties that He's speaking to, to try and bolster Joshua's morale. No, God also pairs these words with the very keys that Joshua will need for his success. In verse 7, he says, Be careful to do all that the law of Moses commanded you, that you may have success. And then in verse 9, he says, Don't be frightened and don't be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because you have the Word and you have God's presence with you. Those were the keys, which might sound simple enough (laughs) until Joshua is actually standing at the walls of Jericho, looking up at these towering heights, these these double walls at 40 and 50 feet tall. And then he gets God's battle plan more specifically. And God says to Joshua, here's the plan. You're going to march around the city, every day for six days in silence. Then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around the city seven times, blow some trumpets, and yell, and walls will come tumbling down. Are you kidding me? Like, really, God, that's, that's the plan? I mean, isn't there something a little bit more sensible that that we could use? Aren't there some battle manuals lying around that we could read that would help us gain the victory? There's got to be something more sensible than that plan. Walk around and shout? I mean, it sounded crazy. But could it really be that simple? The answer for Joshua, of course, was yes. Joshua commands the people to do just as God commanded him, and they they march around the camp, and and the walls fall down. They create this sort of ramp that the Israelites can can climb up straight into the heart of Jericho to, to take over the city, to bring it down. Jericho was one of the most powerful cities at the time, one of the, the heavily defensed cities, but, but when the walls came down, a clear path was made for the people. The Israelites would go on after Jericho to conquer 18 more cities with their kings and peoples, and each time the, the key to success was listening to the Word of God. When they knew God's Word and followed it, they had success. 
when they forgot God's Word or didn't listen to it, there were consequences, sometimes deadly. Which is why we hear Joshua at the end of his life uh, give another last speech, just like Moses did. And in it, he tells the people to listen to God, that if they keep God's Word, they will have success, they will take the land. But if they forget God's Word, if they go to the left or to the right, like God warned, He says it'll be a snare and a trap, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish. Now, as you read these stories today, just a side tangent here, as you read these stories in advance of today or as you're pondering them now, you you may have found yourself kind of unsettled by the brutality of it all. I mean, it seems a little, I don't know, hard to stomach, right? We come to these texts with our modern ears, and, and we can't read them without, well, imagining some sort of empiricism like Nazi Germany conquering land after land around them. But it's important to understand what's actually going on here. God isn't condoning violence in these sections. God is not telling us, you and me, that we need to go take arms against uh, whatever political party or ethnic group or unrighteous social movement that we despise and, and, and go and storm these Jerichos. It's not what God is telling us. As Jesus said in His most foundational uh, sermon, He said, do not resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what's going on here? How do we sort what's going on in these battle stories? Well, what's happening in this section is God is actually doling out. He's delivering divine judgment on human evil at a specific moment in history. See, God is a God of love, but He can't be a God of love if He allows evil to fester and persist in the world, because when that happens, that evil will eventually squash and and destroy any potential for love or human flourishing, much like we saw in the events leading up to World War II. And so we believe in a God of love, but we also believe in a God of justice who will put an end to evil and all of the suffering that it causes in the world. And that is what God is doing here. The peoples that populated the promised land were morally bankrupt. They burned their sons and daughters alive in pagan worship. They practiced lewd sexual deviance, and God had been patient to these people, right? God had had let this go on for hundreds of years, but He had promised He wouldn't let it go on forever. And so, finally, he, He came through on what He promised Abraham 600 years earlier when He said, 
the Israelites will come back here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their evil had reached a tipping point, and God would wait no longer. So he used Joshua and the Israelites as his arm of justice, putting an end to that evil. And in that same moment, he established for his people a land that they could grow and flourish and, and share God's vision for how human life was to go so that all the people of the world could be blessed. This was the reason for their battle. You and I are still locked in this battle today. The battle for the promised land. The battle for spiritual rest. The geography is different. We're not in the Middle East. Right? Our enemies are not the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Hittites or the other Vites who are there. We're still locked in that age-old battle of good and evil. And maybe when you think of evil in this world, maybe what comes to mind are specific people who seem to be at the forefront of, of evil. Maybe it's people who, in our mind, are kind of our targets, the people we, we want to blame, the people who take up our, our headspace or our words and conversations or maybe our social media accounts. But our real enemy is someone else entirely. And the turf that this battle is waged on is much less physical and far more mental. Paul said it in our epistle reading in Ephesians. He said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Our enemy is not our rival political party or the person pestering us at school or at work. Our real enemy is the devil. And it's going to take a whole lot more than just blind optimism if we're going to survive his attacks. It's not enough to simply be strong and courageous. And we're going to need to use the same keys that Joshua relied on for his success. The presence of God and the power of his word. Paul echoed that in the same Scripture passage from Ephesians later when he said, "'Use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit.'" Paul is saying we need to to listen to the Word of God. We need to meditate on it. We don't want you to be people who just read the Bible. We want you to be people who reread the Bible. Let God's work soak into who you are so that when the devil comes around, you know how to respond to him. And we need to pray, just like Jesus modeled for us out in the wilderness, taking time to pray to his Father. And we need to pray to Jesus and unload to him our fears and frustrations and let His truth speak back to us. 
because the devil will come around. We know that he roams around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And the devil is the master of deception. Right? That's his tactic too, deception. The devil, that term in the Greek, it's the word diabolos. Right? It's the same word that we get our term diabolical. And what diabolos actually means is slanderer. Right? The devil is a slanderer. A slanderer means to make false and damaging statements against someone. The devil makes false statements about who God is. He says that God isn't really there for you. That God actually doesn't care for you. That God has abandoned you. The devil wants you to believe that, that God could never actually love you. Not after everything that you've done. Those are lies. Those are untruths that the devil speaks to us in our minds. How are you going to know the truth unless you know Jesus, right? The way, the truth, and the life. How are you going to defend yourself in the moment when His words are up here unless, unless the Word, Jesus, is there too? We need to read the Word and let it become a part of us so it becomes even a part of our thoughts and our thinking against the devil's lies. And maybe those lies about who God is, maybe those are the easy ones. Maybe the more challenging ones are the lies that the devil gets us to think about ourselves. Lies like, good things don't seem to come to me, so I might as well stop trying to be successful. Or the lie, if someone really knew me, if someone actually knew how I was, they would reject me. Or maybe it's lies on the flip side, the lie that says, I can do and say whatever I want. God will forgive me. It doesn't matter how I live in this world. The devil has a way of getting into our heads, plaguing us with disinformation about who God is and who we are. But God has equipped us for the fight. He's equipped us with His Word and with prayer. His Word, the very presence of God that we get to read and meditate on, the very uh, tool that Jesus used against the devil himself in the wilderness. And God gives us prayer. God has opened up that channel of communication for us to speak to him, right in here even, to speak to the one who has created this whole world in his wisdom. We have access to that. God's word and prayer. Could it really be that simple? The short answer is yes, but just because the strategy is simple, it doesn't mean the execution won't be excruciating. The battle can and will be bitter and painful 
and persistent and at times downright exhausting. But take heart, my friends. Be strong and courageous, for though the battle rages on, the war is already over. In 1944, when the Germans resorted once again to their blitzkrieg tactic, that was a last-ditch effort. They had already effectively lost the war over a year sooner. Many people see the Battle of Stalingrad, which happened in 1943, as the decisive battle in World War II. But the Nazis wanted to convince their enemies otherwise. They wanted to convince us, the Allies, that that they were still the stronger ones, that they could still overturn what had already been accomplished. The war with the devil that you and I are engaged in, it's already over. For on that day, At Calvary, Jesus stormed the gates of hell. Jesus stomped down to the devil's turf. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended into hell. And when he did, he knocked the devil's teeth straight out. Jesus declared victory that day at the cross of Calvary. But you know how enemies respond when they've lost. They dig their heels in deeper. They blitzkrieg. The devil wants to convince you and me that that Jesus' work on the cross is not definitive, that we are not actually forgiven by God, that God is not on our side. But we know better because we know the truth. The devil has been defeated. Jesus has crushed his head, because Jesus has risen again, and he is alive. You and I are alive in Christ. Victory is assured for you and me because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, may you and I be people who, who, when we see the devil's schemes, when we are attacked and maybe even conquered in his sight, the devil's sight, may we see those not as disasters, but as opportunities to draw near to our Savior, to draw near to our King and our Commander, Jesus, and to rest in His Word and in His presence. In His name we pray. Amen. And the peace of Christ, which surpasses all human understanding, it will guard our hearts and our minds in the one true faith. Amen.